Hello and welcome back to the Yeshua Judaism series of podcast. This is part four of Antichrist One. Antichrist One is where we present explanatory and preparational material which will help illuminate and underline and underpin and support what is presented in Antichrist 2. And we are in part 4, as I said, of Antichrist 1. We left off in part 3, where we had returned to discussing the Gospel of Matthew. And you may recall that we mentioned how the arrangement of events depicted by Yeshua within that Matthew chapter 24 chapter, or excuse me, Matthew chapter 24, was as follows. First, it says, People will be led into sin or transgression of Torah. Then they will betray and hate one another. We discussed that in the latter part towards the end of Antichrist 1, part 3. Now we're going to begin discussing the second series of events which were depicted in Matthew chapter 24. And that is that a large number of false prophets that is, those claiming to speak for God, will then appear, according to Matthew chapter 24, and deceive a very large number of people. So now we're about to discuss that. So let's go into that second series of events as depicted in chapter 24 of the Gospel of Matthew as Yeshua was responding to questions from his disciples. So, false prophets appear and deceive many. And we read in chapter 11 of that gospel, quote, And many false prophets will appear and deceive many. Now, remember what we were saying earlier in previous parts, how the term many refers to a very large number. So it's referring to a very large number of false prophets will appear and deceive a very large number of people. All right, so basically here, Yeshua in verse 11 was telling his disciples that a lot of false prophets would show up and would, would, they would appear and they would deceive a lot of people. So, secondly, that is following what we discussed in, part, in uh, the previous part three, following the acts of betrayal and hatred by ferocious anti-Yeshua elements of the Pharisees who survived the destruction of Jerusalem in the second temple, a very large number of false prophets appeared and took control of the fledgling Yeshua Judaism faith, which is the authentic New Testament faith. Now, there were at least three primary reasons for this occurrence, and I would submit possibly a fourth reason. That is, the occurrence of false prophets appearing and taking control of the faith. First, the followers of Yeshua, driven from the synagogues and probably with no official synagogue in which to meet, since the anti-Yeshua Pharisees had probably taken control of most of them, the followers of Yeshua were likely in a state of disarray, depression, confusion, and they were scattered. As such, and with probable banishment from where Torah scrolls were located for study, Torah-knowledgeable leadership among Yeshua's followers probably began to rapidly diminish. Now, you got to remember, Torah scrolls at that time were 
very precious and rare. The only places they could be found were likely in the synagogues from which Yeshua's followers were banished. They were cast out of those synagogues where the Torah scrolls were located. That was likely most, if not all, synagogues, since the political pressure to censor and drive away Yeshua's followers was strongly pushed by the elitist and often very wealthy Pharisaic components of Yeshua, among whom were the Tanaim, the most highly revered of Akiva or Rabbinic Judaism sages, and I discussed the Tanaim previously in other parts and will not go into it here. So a second reason, so that's the first reason for the, pro- the false prophets appearing and taking control. A second reason, the persecution from, from Rome was underway at that time. Very harsh persecution. Since the majority of Yeshua's original followers were Jews who revered and observed the Torah, they were slaughtered and persecuted every bit as much as any other Torah-keeping Jew. This added to the reduction of Torah scholars among Yeshua's followers. In other words, Rome at that time, and this was largely under Emperor Hadrian, Rome was just a a vicious anti-Torah government. And they wanted to rid the world of Torah, not, not just the Jews. For instance, Hitler wanted to rid the world of Jews. Rome at that time mainly wanted to rid the world of Torah. So that was another reason for the probable false prophets arising, appearing, and taking control, that the followers of Yeshua were being persecuted, and those followers, those original followers, they were Torah-centric. They were Torah-focused. They adhered to Torah. They revered Torah. So they were targets also of anti-Torah Rome. So this added to the reduction of Torah scholars because Torah scholars, Torah teachers were being killed. Okay? It was, basically, it was against the law. It was a capital offense to even teach Torah. All right? And if they found someone teaching Torah, that person was either killed or in some or put into prison or whatever. The point being, they were trying to eradicate Torah, and part of that is to eradicate Torah teachers. All right? So that's the second reason for the probable growth of false prophets within the fledgling Yeshua Judaism faith. The third reason, and this is a history that you won't hear in a church. Christianity does not want this history to get out, but here it is. Emperor Publius Aelius Hadrianus, commonly known as Emperor Hadrian, arrived on the scene in the mid-2nd century. Now, Hadrian renamed Jerusalem, Aelia Capitolina, after himself and the pagan god Jupiter Capitolinus. Hadrian had a temple erected, excuse me, dedicated to Jupiter, erected on the Temple Mount. Now, see, this was following the destruction of Jerusalem, okay? So Hadrian, following the destruction of Jerusalem, had a temple dedicated to Jupiter on the Temple Mount, where the Holy Temple once stood. He built other pagan temples elsewhere. Hadrian banned Jews from the city. He forbade the practice of circumcision, Torah study, and teaching of Torah. Hadrian also solidified the expression Palestine 
as a term for the land of Israel. That's why today you hear people, generally people who are opponents and enemies of Israel, they refer to Israel as Palestine. Well, Hadrian was the guy who came up with that name. That's where the term Palestine originates, from Emperor Hadrian. Hadrian obsessively strove to eradicate Torah from existence, which included eradication of those who revered it and who refused to convert to Roman paganism. Among the slain were souls numbered with the earliest and purest in faith followers of Yeshua the Messiah. And lest I forget, Hadrian, the despot pagan emperor, appointed the first non-Jewish leader of the church in Jerusalem. Did you hear that? This is why one reason why you will not hear this taught from Christian pastors, from Christian pulpits. They don't want Christians to know about the early history of Christianity. They do not want Christians to know that the first non-Jewish, non-Jewish leader of the Messianic group, of the followers of Yeshua, the first non-Jewish leader, was appointed by Emperor Hadrian. Obviously, this man he appointed, who was Bishop Marcus, would not, he would not agree with Torah. He would be anti-Torah, just like Hadrian, who appointed, because Hadrian would not have appointed a church leader who did not agree with his pagan Torah-hating ideology. Prior to that appointment, prior to Bishop Marcus, all leaders of the followers of Yeshua had been Torah-observant Jews, with some, perhaps many, being literal relatives of Yeshua. The first, for instance, was Yaakov, or James. We see him in the New Testament. He was a literal brother of Yeshua, despite what pagan Catholicism says. Yes, Miriam, Mary had other children, and James was a literal brother of Yeshua. He was the source for what, that is, Hadrian was the source for what would become a flood of false prophets. Remember Yeshua said many false prophets would arise? This is where it began, under Emperor Hadrian, literally, literally to the day we know when that prophecy from Yeshua began to be fulfilled, when Emperor Hadrian appointed Bishop Marcus, a Torah-hating buddy of Hadrian, someone who agreed with Hadrian's desire to rid the original faith of Torah. That was the first big false prophet. Therefore, that became a flood. Bishop Marcus was a flood of false prophets. He, be, he started it. And those false prophets all held to the pagan Roman beliefs. And they began to lead the church from that point forward. Which is frankly why today Christianity is still anti-Torah. Hadrian's evil deeds indeed proved to be very successful. He was very successful in his upheaval, paganizing, and redefinition of Christianity. A redefinition which remains to this very day. 
Friend, the relevance of Emperor Hadrian's actions in fulfilling Yeshua's prophecy precisely cannot be overstated. That action by Emperor Hadrian is precisely where and when the current Christianity faith system began to take shape. It is no coincidence if you are unaware of this provable, clear, factual history, since Christianity does not want you to know about it. Now, in my opinion, there is a fourth possible reason why false prophets, many false prophets, appeared and began to deceive many people. And that possible reason is this. Following the death of Emperor Hadrian and the ascension of Antoninus Pius to the rank of emperor, Roman oppression was lessened, and therefore the Jewish people began to enjoy a measure of peace. This was particularly true during the reign of Emperor Antoninus's adopted son, Marcus Aurelius Antoninus, also sometimes known as Antoninus. And during part of his reign, Marcus Aurelius was actually a co-emperor with a, another individual. Marcus Aurelius was an extremely close friend of the famously exalted rabbi of that time, Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, or Rabbi Judah the Prince, the enormously wealthy rabbi and compiler of the Mishnah. I mean, there's various stories, whether they're historically accurate or not, is up to the individual's opinion or whatever, but there's various stories that indicate that they were truly basically BFFs, best friends forever. Marcus Aurelius Antoninus, the emperor of Rome, and Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi were extremely close. Okay? The book, there's a book by Rabbi Berowine, and I may have pronounced that incorrectly, I'm sorry, B-E-R-E-L-W-E-I-N, if you wish to investigate. And the book is entitled, The Oral Law of Sinai, An Illustrated History of the Mishnah. In that book, it states, regarding Rabbi Yehuda's wealth, quote, now listen to this. This guy was basically the Jeff Bezos of his day, This or the whoever you want to name, you know, Bill Gates, whatever. This was a massively wealthy individual, possibly the wealthiest or among the most wealthy individuals on earth at that time, maybe the wealthiest. But in that book, it states, quote, and this is from a Jewish rabbi, okay? So this is not in, uh, intentionally twisted to paint a negative picture of Rabbi Yehuda. This is from a Jewish rabbi. And in that book, it is stated, quote, it was that he's talking about the wealth of Rabbi Yehuda, and that Rabbi Yehuda's wealth was, quote, of such great magnitude that even his stable masters were wealthier than the kings of local tribes. His own fabulous wealth was estimated to be greater than that of King David and King Shlomo, or Solomon, end quote. Now, did you hear that? This rabbi states that Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi's wealth was estimated to be greater than that of King Solomon. Rabbi Yehuda 
was among those who despised Yeshua's followers and who supported the curse in the Shemoneh Israel prayer which drove Yeshua's followers from the synagogue. It was because of the decades-long period of peace following Hadrian's death that the Oral Torah was able to be compiled and placed within the Mishnah. Personally, I wonder if, since Emperor Marcus Aurelius Antoninus would almost certainly have heeded the words and wishes of his very dear and revered friend, Rabbi Yehuda, I wonder if it is possible that the rabbi encouraged for less peace to be shown towards the separate Torah-keeping Jews who followed Yeshua. I wonder. Yehuda definitely despised them, and the emperor would have likely done as he wished. He would have done whatever Yehuda had asked him to do. All he had to do was ask. Now, just to be clear and to further explain, I'll expand a bit and uh, I'll refer to Marcus Aurelius Antoninus henceforth primarily as just Emperor Antoninus. What Rabbi Yehuda did here, and I'm, I'm stepping away from the material to expand a bit, okay, this great rabbi that Judaism exalts is one of the greatest rabbi, and he began to collect what up to that point was oral Torah, oral teachings, meaning that verbal teachings, see, see, at the time, it was basically not permitted to write down the oral Torah. Everything was transferred verbally from teacher to student, teacher to student, teacher to student, etc. Well, at this time, they realized, having just suffered under Emperor Hadrian, now, that, now they had a, a respite under Emperor Antoninus, so they, of course, realized, look, we can't let this happen. We need to, we need to write this stuff down. Prior to that, it hadn't been written down other than perhaps notes uh, by students as they, were, as they were listening to their rabbi teach them in various Torah study schools or yeshivas. So they decided, we got to write this down because if another emperor comes up like Emperor Hadrian, he could wipe us out and there will no longer be Torah teachers. So to preserve the oral Torah, they decided to compile it and write it down and basically dis distribute it. Rabbi Yehuda the Prince was tasked with that. And of course, being fabulously wealthy and probably able to pay people to help him out, he was a good choice. So they collected various notes and material from the students and, and rabbis all around. And from those, Rabbi Yehuda decided what would actually go into the Mishnah. Now, he decided, he compiled, he parsed. Now, there's a book um, it's Rodkinson's abridged version of the Talmud. There's In book 10 of that, it discusses the history of the Talmud, and it discusses how there were Pharisees, of course, who believed in Yeshua. They were also Torah keepers, so there were a lot of followers of Yeshua who also had oral Torah, and they would submit that to Yehuda or, who, or whoever was, was gathering the material for Rabbi Yehuda. And what would Rabbi Yehuda do with that? Crumple it up, throw it in the trash, basically. He would discard it. Anything, anything that supported Yeshua, it never showed up in the Mishnah, at least not intentionally. But there were Pharisees. There were Torah keepers at the time. There were rabbis at the time who followed Yeshua. It never made it into the Mishnah because he didn't let it make it.
he censored it, destroyed it, and tossed it aside. They very definitely did decide themselves. That was part of their power grab. Part of the massive power grab of Akivaism, of Akiva Judaism, was to make sure their teachings and only their teachings would be what Jews heard from that point forward. Only the opinions of Rabbi Akiva and those with whom he agreed would be, would be promoted as authentic Judaism. So anything that differed from that, Rabbi Yehuda did not, did not include in the Mishnah. And again, if you go and you can actually, it's actually available on the sacred text website on the internet. If you look for the Rodkinson's abridged version of the Talmud, if you go to that site and go to the Judaism section, look for Talmud, look for Rodkinson's abridged version, and then go to book 10, because it's, it's fairly long, and I believe it's in like chapter, it's, just, it's touched upon in chapters 2 and 4, I'm sure, and it tells you that they were called Messiahist. Those Pharisees, he, in his book, he calls them Messiahist. They accepted Yeshua as Messiah, but not as God. They did not believe Yeshua was God. And they would submit material, of course, <coughs> excuse me, as would others, because they all wanted to preserve the Torah. But since they disagreed with Yehuda, who hates Yeshua, who hated Yeshua, as do all rabbis did rabbis then, and as they do today, some rabbis saying that Yeshua is boiling in human feces in hell, so their hatred for him was very great, as, were their, as was their hatred for the followers of Yeshua, which is why they had them cast out of the synagogues. So any Pharisees, any Torah teacher who would present to material to Rabbi Yehuda the prince to be part of the Mishnah, he would throw it aside. He would simply censor it and not, and not put it in there. So continuing on, uh, I just wanted to deviate to explain this Rabbi Yehuda the Hanasi, Rabbi Hudi the Prince, whom they also say could talk to animals, and I won't even go down that path. But uh, he's a highly revered rabbi, and I'm sure he was a great man. I'm sure he was a very righteous man, but no man is perfect, despite what rabbinic Judaism wants people to believe about their earliest sages. They want them to believe they're basically human gods. All right, so as I was saying, during the reign of Antoninus, the Torah-keeping Jews enjoyed a time of peace. Now, again, the Torah-keeping opponents of Yeshua enjoyed a time of peace. And it was because of that decades-long period of peace that the oral Torah was able to be compiled. Oh, and I almost forgot. By the way, Antoninus, Marcus Aurelius Antoninus, the emperor, and Rabbi Yehuda the prince were so close that it was said, it is said that Marcus Aurelius Antoninus, the emperor, basically Emperor Antoninus, was ensured that he would inherit the world to come. Basically, because of his closeness to the Jews, particularly to Rabbi Yehuda the Prince, uh, he was told by the rabbi that, oh yeah, buddy, you're going to be in heaven. He pretty much guaranteed him a place in heaven. Uh, that's just a little side note, and I find that to be very interesting a rabbi has no authority to guarantee anyone a place in heaven. Neither does anyone else. Only God has such authority. I really wonder, and I think it's a pretty pretty sure bet, that Rabbi Yehuda the Prince probably said, Hey, buddy, uh, Emperor Antoninus, you know, you're very friendly. You're very loving and kind to to us Jews. We very we so much appreciate that. But you know what? 
You know those guys who follow Yeshua? You really shouldn't be so kind to them, okay? I would say keep the heat turned up on them. I have, I have very little doubt, that because we got to remember, they hated Yeshua and despised his followers very much. So I really wonder if there was a little gentleman's agreement there between the Akiva Judaism Jews and the emperor that encouraged the emperor to keep persecuting the Jews who were not followers of Akiva but were instead followers of Yeshua. I just wonder. Because Rabbi Yehuda definitely despised those followers of Yeshua, as did all those who agreed with Rabbi Yehuda. And the emperor would have definitely done as he wished. If he had simply asked the emperor to do that, the emperor would almost certainly have done it. Now, I do not yet have any proof that this occurred. That's why I say this is just my opinion and it appears to be a very, very possible thing that probably happened. However, as I said, Rabbi Yehuda's hatred for Yeshua following, you know, following Jews, that is for Yeshua following Jews, was obvious by his hearty support for the recently added curse within the Amidah prayer, or the Shemineh Israel prayer. Additionally, Rabbi Yehuda who is celebrated as the central figure responsible for gathering and compiling the oral Torah, that is the Mishnah, prohibited, as I said, any oral Torah components of the Pharisees who followed Yeshua from being included in the subsequent Mishnah of Rabbinic Judaism. Again, Rodkinson's abridged version of the Talmud discusses this censorship within Book 10, the history of the Talmud, of that abridged version. It discusses this censorship and the biased method of compiling oral Torah, which was used by Rabbi Yehuda. Now, to me, the fourth possible reason that I just elaborated upon is definitely possible. Therefore, if the fourth possibility also occurred, the continuing persecution of the followers of Yeshua during those supposed times of peace with Rome would have diminished their numbers even more, including the number of Torah scholars among them who were capable of being leaders. As a result, because the numbers of remaining followers of Yeshua would have grown increasingly bereft of Torah scholars capable of properly leading them, Torah-ignorant leaders would have stepped in to fill the void, the void left by the Torah-knowledgeable Jews and leaders who were being eradicated by Rome, as discussed above. Now, Hadrian, earlier, of course, ensured that this would happen. So, as again, as we discussed above, that definitely occurred under Emperor Hadrian. And I think it probably continued at least to a certain extent under Emperor Antoninus because of his friendship with the, those who opposed Yeshua, his friendship with the Pharisees, such as Rabbi Yehuda the Prince, who hated Yeshua and his followers. Thus, the faith of and in Yeshua slowly began to be overtaken by Torah-ignorant leaders whose worldviews and conceptual understandings of religion 
were largely based upon Roman Empire paganism. And remember, Emperor Hadrian, who was prior to his son, Emperor Antoninus, appointed the first non-Jewish leader of the followers of Yeshua. And that non-Jewish leader would have agreed with Hadrian's bitter hatred, his bitter anti-Torah beliefs and hatred of Torah. Therefore, this tragic apostasy ultimately led to a belief system which is now represented as Christianity, a faith founded entirely upon opposition to Torah and idolatrous worship of a God in the flesh, both of which, of course, were prominent in pagan Rome at that time. They had many gods in the flesh, and they hated the Torah. However, it needs to be realized that this apostasy was partially the result of the betrayal and hatred of their Jewish brethren by Judaism's Tanaim, the earliest and most revered sages of Judaism. Yes, Judaism's most highly revered rabbis, because of the baseless hatred they demonstrated against Yeshua's original followers, are indeed somewhat responsible for Christianity's severe errors and, therefore, for the rise of Antichrist, as discussed within this material, within Christianity. All right. Lastly, now we're going back. Remember, there were three events, arrangement of events, which Yeshua spoke about. Again, I'll read from verses 10 and 11 of Matthew 24. Then many will be led into sin, and they will betray one another. That's the first. And hate one another. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many. We just discussed that. Now the third series of events depicted by Yeshua. Verse 12. And because lawlessness will increase so much, the love of many will grow cold. But the person who endures to the end will be saved. Therefore, event number three. Because lawlessness will increase, the love of many will grow cold. Now remember, the Greek term lawlessness is anomia, which we prove in the article, Does Christianity Truly Follow Christ?, means contempt or violation for Torah. Anomia, or lawlessness, means Torahlessness. It means contempt for Torah, or violation of Torah. So that's event number three. So, let's discuss, lastly, lawlessness. Contempt or violation of Torah, and how it increases, and therefore the love of man grows cold. So as lawlessness increases, the love of man grows cold. Remember, verse 12, And because lawlessness will increase so much, the love of many will grow cold. Then verse 13, But the person who endures to the end will be saved. As people were and are still being further led into sin due to Christianity's foundational anti-Torah position, false prophets did do and will continue to multiply. Their teachings accelerate the condition of lawlessness 
that is for contempt for or violation of Torah. The final result of the abandonment of Torah was and is that, quote, the love of many will grow cold. The tyrannical terrorist history of Christianity profoundly illustrates in a direct manner, in a very direct manner that's possible to illustrate, the fulfillment of Yeshua's prophecy. The horror-filled, devilish, dictatorial tyranny of Christianity spanned more than a thousand years, and it could be argued lasted at least 1,500 years. I mean, people, facts are facts. Christians don't want to hear it, but it's a fact. Christianity is the most brutal, longest-lasting, and heartless terrorist organization the world has ever known. That is a fact. And I know Christians don't like hearing it. Tough. Go study your history. It is a fact. It lasts far longer than any terrorist organization ever has. It lasted at least a thousand years. Now, those who endure in their dedicated rejection of this progression from sin to the appearance of a large number of false prophets to the resulting lack of love among mankind for God and for one another will be saved, as it says in verse 13. Sadly, however, very few have been shown to possess such endurance. Very few Christians. Nevertheless, the good news is that there is still time to repent and to develop dedication and endurance to the true God and to His Torah. Dedication and love for the true God and His Torah. There's time, people. There's time to repent of the anti-Torah beliefs of Christianity, of the pagan, idolatrous, God-in-the-flesh beliefs of Christianity. You can still repent and return to the true God and to the true faith of an in Yeshua. It's your choice. Repent or continue believing the truth. If you, if you, if you re revere Torah and worship the true God and recognize Yeshua as He truly is, if you do that, if, you, if you're doing that now, keep doing it and endure. If you're not doing that, repent and start doing it. And then you too endure and be saved. Or Face the consequences of embracing error and the false prophets who promote it, who began appearing on the scene as early as the second century. So finally, concluding this part four, Yeshua's prophecy was precisely and exactly fulfilled that prophecy of Yeshua in Matthew chapter 24, verses 10 through, through 12, was already fulfilled, or at least is continuing to be fulfilled, since we still have many, many false prophets out there calling themselves Christian pastors. So his prophecy was precisely and is precisely fulfilled. It is no coincidence that the chronology of events about which Yeshua prophesied is exactly what occurred. 
As Judaism's adored Tanaim, their most revered sages, exercised betrayal and baseless hatred towards their fellow Jews who followed Yeshua, in order to drive Yeshua's followers from the synagogues, those followers began to be taken over by Torah-opposing Hellenist Jews or Gentiles who embraced pagan Rome and pagan Rome's ideology. The resulting Torah-opposing idolatrous religion of Christianity then, for many centuries, undertook what history proves to be the longest-lasting 1,000 to 1,500 years and most horrific orgy of terror and tyranny that mankind has ever known. No, it is not a coincidence. All that history is simply a partial fulfillment of Messiah Yeshua's prophecies. And we'll end part four here. And in part five, we will begin to discuss what I hinted at in parts one and even maybe parts two about punctuation. We'll begin to discuss how legitimate punctuation reveals who is actually the ones misleading you. Legitimate punctuation of Matthew chapter 24, particularly the early passages we read, it identifies, it helps us to know who the people are that are misleading us. So we'll pick up on that topic in part five. And I thank you for listening and hope that you'll join me again in part five. Thank you and goodbye.